Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. I'd like to introduce our guest speaker, Mark Parkinson, and we are honored to have him here with us. Mark is the uh, president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association, one of, one of the largest associations and lobbying groups in Washington, representing 14,000 skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities. Mark has a great background for this, having actually run his own facilities back in Kansas and Missouri, and also having served as a congressman, a, a senator inside the state of Kansas, and then eventually the lieutenant governor and the governor of the state. And he brings that skill and that ability to work across the aisle to his job in Washington. This has been obviously the hardest year in the history of the sector. There's no debate about that, both from a clinical point of view of trying to take care of the people in our buildings, and then from a business point of view of trying to keep ourselves alive. Um, We've never faced anything like this. And, you know, I think the irony is that when we came into 2020, many people, especially on the skilled nursing side, thought that 2020 might be the best year that we will have faced in 20 or so years because we had succeeded with the implementation of PDPM. It looked like PDPM was working for our residents and for us at our businesses. And our goal coming into 2020 was let's hold on to PDPM. Well, that all changed in early March, late February, when we learned that this worldwide pandemic not only was not gonna spare the long-term care sector, but in reality, we were gonna become ground zero for this pandemic. We're now about six months into that. I think that this is about a 12-month event on the clinical side. It's then going to take longer to recover. But we're about halfway through the nightmare in our buildings. I think that by March of 2021, roughly six months from now, we'll be in a much better position with a vaccine that I believe by then will have been distributed to our frontline workers to our residents, if it looks like it works for the elderly, testing will be better, et cetera. In fact, I think that really the next six months is gonna be us sort of winning against the virus. The virus has, has beaten the country in the first six months. But for the next six months, I think that every week there will be better news on testing. There'll be better news on vaccines, better news on treatments. and. Ultimately, I think we will end up with a vaccine, but we've still got a lot of work to do over the next six months. So we are proactively developing plans for 2021 and ideas that we think will move the sector forward, and we certainly hope so. So I know the last six months have been pure hell. The next six months are going to be hard. I think they'll be better than the last six. And then the real story will be told and the future of the sector will be defined. And I remain optimistic that that it will be better than what we've had in the past. I'm gonna start with kind of a generic question that I think ties many of your points together. When we were talking before, you talked about how you talk to 15 or 20 CEOs a day, and the biggest focus on their mind is how do they financially survive the pandemic? What's your takeaway from those conversations and what advice do you have for people who are living through that as a, as a former operator yourself? It's very case by case. So the pandemic has affected 
different operators in very different ways. If you were in the Northeast and got hit hard early on, the census figures that I gave are completely inapplicable. Those buildings didn't lose 10 or 12% census. Some of those buildings lost 20, 30, and 40% census. On the other hand, if you're in the Midwest or on the West Coast or just are fortunate enough or through you know, hard work, haven't had a bunch of COVID cases, your census might only be down six or 7%. For folks in the skilled nursing space, because of the federal funds that we've been able to receive, people in that second category are doing okay. Nobody, nobody's doing great, but they're doing okay. The people that are really at great risk are the folks that got hit super hard early on. And then the other people are folks that are in independent living and assisted living that have gotten hit hard. You know, maybe they were in the COVID hotspots early on and they've gotten absolutely no funding. So a big part of this continues to be federal help. I mean, we've got to continue to get the stream of money going that, and, and you know, we've been successful on the skilled nursing side. We've got work to do with assisted living, but a big, a big situation has to be federal help. Operationally, there's not a lot that you can do. Number one thing that, you know, is if you can keep COVID low in your building and develop the confidence to reopen to admissions and then get your marketing re-going to the hospitals, to where, whoever else are your referral sources, that's an important thing to do. And as onerous as this testing requirement is, and believe me, I'm getting emails and texts from folks today that aren't happy about it. I think in the medium run, it's going to prove to be a beneficial thing. I think it's going to lower COVID in our buildings, and I think it's going to increase the confidence of the public in coming into our buildings. So, you know, a, a focus on keeping COVID low, returning to your normal marketing, watching your expenses like a hawk, all of the things. I, I don't have a silver bullet, Kevin. Going down that path, in some of our conversations, we talked about the infection rates and AL being lower than an IL, and your feeling was that that was due to different staffing levels and less physical contact with the patient potentially. What are the learnings that some of the operators can take away from, do you see when you start doing those retrospective studies that you just talked about, and you see the difference in infection rates between the two, how will those, you know, what will the learnings be that will be promulgated down to a skilled nursing facility potentially through new regulations? Or is it something that operators can take to heart and start doing now to better improve their marketing as they move forward? Great question. Well, you know, what was happening early on with this virus was that we had all these employees out in their communities. Some of them were getting COVID. Some of those people were showing no symptoms. They were coming into, back into the long-term care buildings, and because we didn't know that asymptomatic people were spreading the virus back in February and March, that the perfect infection control wasn't stopping it. You know, there was no requirement before COVID that every time you interact with a resident, you wear a mask. And so as we were dressing them, feeding them, transferring them, hugging them, socializing with them, eating with you know, COVID was getting spread. So. It's not surprising that one of the findings is that early on, the more staff you had, the higher chance it was that you had COVID, just because you had a higher chance of an asymptomatic employee. 
but we've learned some other lessons that I think can be utilized. I think one of the reasons that COVID has been lower in assisted living and in independent living, it's not just the staffing levels, it's also the fact that there are private, typically private rooms. And so it's much easier to cohort and to quarantine and to protect somebody in a situation where there's COVID out there. I hope that as we do the retrospective on what's next and what we should do in the future, there'll be a real look at building nursing homes in the future that have more private rooms. You know, I think it's a shame that all of these buildings were built in the 60s and 70s with these double room designs. And I don't even understand you know, why it happened. Stacy and I, we had 10 buildings and we built them all from the ground up and we had all private rooms. The dollar amount between a private room and a shared room from a construction and development point of view, it's not as much as you might think. And so hopefully moving forward, you know, that's, that's something that we'll look at is we'll learn about the importance of private rooms. I think we've also learned about the importance of stockpiling PPE, you know, which nobody was doing. I think CMS is going to issue some kind of requirement that we store up three months of PPE. We can't get it now, but in the long run, that's a good idea, particularly if we can get them to fund it. So we're going we're gonna to need to store up PPE. I think we're going to need to do more on infection control. You know, we haven't fought that. We've actually encouraged the government to not reduce requirements on infection control. And we're going to probably be advocating for more infection control in buildings in the future. So it's been a horrible nightmare and, you know, there's no way to put a positive spin on 50,000 people time in our buildings, but there are some positive things that can come out of this. If, if, and I think the most important thing is that we, that we look in the mirror, that we don't just blame others. There are a lot of others to blame. The public policy decisions that have been made during the pandemic have been awful, just really bad. But I also think we have to look at ourselves and say, are there things that we can do to be better? And I think if we go in with that attitude, we can make this better. So based on my calculations and some reading I did, there has been more than 3,400 COVID-related lawsuits already against businesses. That's, that's not just senior living facilities across all businesses. You know, with, with uh, senior living being at the center of the storm, do you have any visibility into, you know, what are those lawyers targeting and what can the, the people on this call do to protect themselves as best they can? And as a big employer ourselves, what, what should we be thinking about? It's absolutely critical that, that we get this liability protection. Now, if, if, if we don't, and even if we do, I mean, it's not complete immunity. What it does is, is it says that you can't be sued for simple negligence. There has to be gross negligence or intentional activity. So it's not a, it's not a complete get out of jail card free. It, there's still you know, some things that have to be done. It's like anything else, really good operators that are doing the right thing and documenting that they are doing the right thing and not saying dumb things in emails that you know, end up getting used against them will do okay. And people that aren't doing the right thing and that end up sitting around dumb emails are, are going to be in trouble. And so I would absolutely be talking to my liability carrier, asking the question that Kevin just asked, what are best practices? I'd be talking to my general counsel or whatever your outside lawyers, whatever it is, what should we be doing in our buildings? Following all of the guidance, and I know it's hard because some of the guidance is conflicted and, and duplicative, et cetera. 
but doing everything that you can and documenting it to keep COVID out of the buildings and keep it from spreading once it's in and documenting it. I'm repeating myself, but that's really, really important. Those are the things that, that I would be doing. I would be testing once a week all staff. I would be doing that even before the reg, and I would definitely be doing it with the reg. Even if I was in a state that had a low positive rate, I'd be testing staff every week. It will show that you've gone above and beyond. And I also think it's the best way to keep COVID out, is knowing who's got it and who doesn't. I know it's not perfect because there's still six days in between each of those tests that staff can go out into the community and get it. But I would be testing staff once a week. You know, you talked about when you were governor and you had a lead through the, the last financial meltdown and uh, your budgets were were cut and you're managing with no revenue or decreasing revenue. What advice would you have for the people on the call having done that at the state level, dealing with the requirement to have to balance the budget, which most of the people on this call have to do? What were your learnings from that process that they could apply to their to their day-to-day businesses? Well, it's hard during the pandemic, but it's important that you double down on your political activity you know, get together with your state association, whichever one that you, you belong to, and say, what are we doing to stave off a Medicaid cut in 2021? Tell me the plan, and I want to be a part of the plan. And so really, really active political involvement, lobbying efforts, it's the only way, because the governors are going to be under tremendous pressure to cut a gazillion things, and we have to stand out as the one thing they shouldn't cut. Now, We've got some good policy arguments for that. The fight is still taking place in our buildings, so it's not a smart policy thing to cut long-term care right now, but there's going to be pressures to cut everything. And so if we're quiet and we're not at the state house, you know, we're not lobbying in whichever way it'll occur. It might, this might all be virtual, but however it occurs, we just really have to double down our lobbying efforts or else, you know, the end result is not going to be good. Mark, from my point of view, I've got a page full of notes that I took from when you were speaking as usual. I really appreciate, you know, your time is your most valuable asset and I appreciate you taking the time to spend it with us and our clients on the call. So thank you very much. It was extremely educational. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.